Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the brand new weekly podcast from the Institute for Government. And it could hardly be a livelier week to start on. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute, which was set up to make government work better. Why do governments get so many things wrong? How do they manage to get some things right? What does Brexit mean for how government works? And what does Brexit mean for how the United Kingdom works? So the shock waves of that 2016 referendum continue to be felt throughout Westminster and the world. How might our politics, our parliament, and our entire constitution change in the years, months, weeks, even hours to come? These questions and many more are at the heart of what we do at the Institute for Government, and we're going to be looking at them every week on Inside Briefing with the IFG. So don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or another platform. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by my IFG colleagues, historian Kath Haddon. For historians, this is also quite a lively time. It is a very lively time. Very pleased to be able to talk about this here today. And at the moment, mostly doing quite a bit of constitutional agony arts is what I'm calling myself. <laughs> Hannah White, you're our Deputy Director and you used to be clerk in the House of Commons and Parliament has suddenly become centre stage in all these things. Yes, it's quite a time to be someone who knows about how Parliament works. And I do find myself trying to work out if I was still back in the House of Commons, exactly what I'd be making of all this. And Joe Owen, you're director of our Brexit programme and you're living these Brexit negotiations hour by hour as well as trying to look further ahead. Yeah, I never thought I'd have to know so much about customs procedures, but also, yeah, looking forward to to what may come next. We get very distracted by the, as you say, what's happening in the hours ahead, but actually this process could go on for a lot, lot longer. Thanks for that warning. This week, we're going to be looking at what's new and very old about Boris Johnson's deal whether Parliament or government has the upper hand, and whether Brexit is going to prove the death of Britain's constitution. And later on, we're going to speak to Giles Wilkes, former advisor to Theresa May, who's just joined us last week as a senior fellow. And he's written a new report for us on what no deal, which still can't be ruled out, will really mean for business and just how expensive that might be. He's calculated those figures for the first time and asked whether the government's plans really make sense. That later. And in a week when Parliament has again done battle with the government, Hilary Benn, chair of the exiting EU committee in the House of Commons, has been speaking to Kath. All that and more coming up. Before we begin, it's worth just acknowledging what an extraordinary time we're living through. Parliament and the executive, as people call it, the government, are wrestling with each other to work out which one has the power to say which route the country takes through the Brexit swamp. That's forced people to become familiar with our famously uncodified constitution, know the names of the members of the Supreme Court, and ask questions that felt purely academic just a decade ago, such as whether the United Kingdom is going to break up. Meanwhile, the world is asking, with alarm as well as a kind of black fascination, how one of the oldest democracies brought itself so quickly to this point. Let's start with where we are now. At the time of recording, we think the UK has struck a deal with the European Union at last. Joe, can you explain, I'm going to say, in under a minute, the difference between Theresa May's deal and the deal that Boris Johnson is trying to drive through? Hopefully you won't time me. So obviously the texts have just come out, so it's very difficult to do a very detailed analysis. But in under a minute, I would probably point to three big differences that we know Boris Johnson is trying to achieve. The first one is on customs. Now, what is different about this agreement is that that customs border would now exist and it will exist in practice in the Irish Sea for goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, number two is what is being talked about as the principle of consent. So this is the ability for the Northern Ireland Assembly to say, we don't like these arrangements anymore after four years, and to move away from the Irish backstop as it would exist in the withdrawal agreement. And then the final big difference is the political declaration, what we mean by the intent for the future relationship. Because remember, this is all about withdrawal. This is about us lining up our ducks as we leave the EU, not about what our future relationship will be. And the big difference here is that 
this is a harder Brexit than Theresa May's Brexit. And I just wanted to home in on what uh, has been and may indeed still be the sticking point in this, which is the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, and what it is that they're particularly worried about, about this, this treatment of Northern Ireland slightly differently from the rest of the UK. What, what's been their concern, Joe? So I think they have a number of concerns, some of which are the same as the concerns they had with Theresa May's deal, the fact that they would have to align to single market rules without a say in them. The other is the fact that whether or not in kind of principle they're still part of the UK's customs territory, there will be a customs border uh, practically between them and the UK. And then the final one on consent is that they don't quite have the veto uh, that they would have hoped for where they could be the deciding factor on whether the backstop fell after four years. So their fear is that the parties in the Northern Ireland Assembly, uh, the the, um, the nationalist parties, Sinn Féin, might get together with others and, and just manage to get a majority. And in their view, this might be breaching the Good Friday Agreement, which said that both sides um, of, the, of the community would have to give assent. Well, they don't even need to find a majority because... Because the default is set to a continue aligning with the EU, the nationalists could just collapse power sharing. And if there is no executive in place, there is no vote and therefore they continue to align. So it's not even about requiring a majority. There is always that default of being able to just pull the plug on the Northern Ireland executive and assembly and therefore continue alignment. So I guess the question is, is it still an undemocratic back- backstop, which is the, the, the phrase which was repeatedly used by the government, or do the consent mechanisms mean that actually now there's sufficient democracy built in? Well, this is a super interesting question, because if you want to make it democratic and give Northern Ireland a vote, whichever way the default is set allows one side or the other to pull the plug and get the outcome that they want by just avoiding a vote. So it's really tricky to square, if you want to give them a vote, how you avoid the ability of one side to have a veto over the other. Hannah, we've got all the players on the stage now, or at least some of them. So what happens now in Parliament? So, yeah, we've discussed the first part of this, which is the the UK government coming to an agreement with the EU. And the next stage is, as you've been starting to talk about with Joe whether this can get through the UK Parliament. And there's still, our law says, the law passed by Parliament last year, the EU Withdrawal Act, says there are two things that need to happen now. You need to have a meaningful vote on the deal. Parliament needs to agree in principle, and that needs to be on both the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. And then we need to pass legislation. We need to get that treaty with the EU onto our statute book. And, you know, we are quite short on time. It's possible the government might decide that actually it wants to use this piece of legislation, what's called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, to say we don't need to bother with a meaningful vote, we'll take that off the table. But this is all going to take time and there isn't a lot of time left. The Prime Minister has famously said, look, do or die, we're going to leave on October 31st. What would have to happen uh, for him to uh, manage to do that? So you need you need these two stages. He needs to get Parliament to agree in principle first. And if, if Parliament passes its meaningful vote, that will take what's called the Ben Act out of the picture. So the Ben Act is this bill passed by backbenchers uh, and rebels to say, actually, we really don't want to leave without a deal to bind the government to have to ask the EU for an extension if Parliament hasn't, hasn't explicitly agreed to a deal. So really, he's got two routes, and one of them may not be open. He's either got to get this deal through, as you said, getting rid of the Ben Act, or is he bound by the Ben Act? If he can't get Parliament to back this, uh, does he have to ask for an extension? It kind of feels like we're just looking at this first vote. You know, can he get... and it? Okay, you know, there's likely to be some kind of vote on Saturday. Can he get that passed? Does he have enough support, whether it's the DUP, whether it's his own hardline Brexiteers, whether it's some Labour leavers? He's got to get some kind of vote. He's got to do basically what Theresa May spent all of last, you know, winter and spring trying to do. And he's got to do that basically this weekend in order to have enough time to be able to then get the legislation through before the 31st. And that's really the crucial issue is, has anything changed? enough there. Theresa May was always looking down the barrel for, can we get to this crunch point where everyone realises it's this deal or it's something you really, really don't want? And the question is whether enough MPs have moved psychologically to thinking, no, it's this deal, I want Brexit or I don't want an extension, 
I don't want another referendum. Something and like and that. Brexit fatigue may play a, a, bit, a big part well. in this. Hannah, I just want to come back to this point about the Ben Act, because this is one of the big ways in which Parliament has tried to exert its, its, its powers against the government. And we've had this long wrestling match between Parliament and the government. Is the, the government, in your view, bound by the Ben Act that it must ask for, ask for an extension if it hasn't done these other things? We've had a lot of discussion, a lot of briefing out of number 10 saying there are ways around this. But I think nothing has come out clearly as a way for the government to get around it. And government ministers have now said that the prime minister would ask for an extension if he doesn't manage to fulfil the terms of the Act. So I think we think that the government thinks it is bound. And that means that no deal is not a prospect immediately because he's going to have to go to the EU, ask for an extension initially to the 31st of January. Yeah, and the Brexit Secretary has said this week that if there is no deal passed on Saturday, they will be asking for an extension. So it looks like despite all of the talk over the summer in the last few weeks and so forth about possible ways to test the law to its limits, all that kind of stuff, that they will actually acknowledge they've got to get an extension. I want to just leap a long, long way forward to next week, the beginning of next week. And we have a vote on the Queen's speech, mm. um, which was you know, the, the, the theatre, if you like, at it's the beginning of last week. The Queen, her, her crown, the robes and every, everything and Parliament shut down for that. So that, that, that was uh, you know, just days ago. Beginning of next week, in theory, Parliament is going to have... Uh, a vote on this. Kath, what does that vote mean? Does it mean anything at all? It does. And uh, you look back historically, this has been like the first big set piece that uh, any government has. Remember, Boris Johnson, you know, this is his first Queen's speech. Uh, he came into office and then he's, he lost a series of quite major parliamentary votes. And if a Queen's speech is about showing that you've got the confidence of the House of Commons, it ought to mean something. Didn't he only win his first vote this week? He did, yeah. Uh, and uh, much more minor things, all the big Good things. Good he's, point. he's actually failed on. But at least he, he's got one win, which is great. But the, the important thing about the Queen's speech is that it is representative of showing that you've got confidence. But you've got this thing, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which is this new legal way of showing that you've got confidence. There's a lot of confusion about what that means and does it mean that okay, other so let's break, votes I, I want to, this, is, this is really interesting. So yeah. I want to break this down in, in, into bits. The Fixed Term Parliaments Act came in when and why? It came in in 2011 and it was brought in by the coalition government because there were concerns, the Liberal Democrats, that the uh, Conservatives would be able to collapse the coalition at any point and just ask the, the Queen for a dissolution and a general election. They didn't want that. They wanted to make sure that if they were signing up to a coalition government, it would last five years. And, and, and so, so it, was, it was brought in, I mean, the coalition brought in to kind of strengthen the coalition, yeah. but also appealing to, you know, if you like, almost a kind of invoking American model, saying, look, yeah. we're, look we're surrendering some of the powers of government to organise elections when we want. Absolutely. Yeah. If you look elsewhere in the world, they all have like fixed term acts. And that was what was notable about this. We so it sounded great. Yeah, we could have had the fixed term Parliament Act. We've got the Parliaments Act, which I like to remind people people almost on a meaning, daily basis, meaning, what? meaning that this was therefore going to go into subsequent parliaments. They could have just had an act which said for these years, 2010 to 2015, we will have a fixed term. But no, they decided that this would be a permanent thing. They were going to review it at a later stage. We're still waiting for that review. And so we're now seeing the consequences yeah. of legislating for very specific circumstances yeah. and how those can play out in actually quite different circumstances. Yeah. So I just want to jump back for a second to the Queen sitting there just days ago reading out the Queen's speech. Mm. Kath, I mean, just uh, before the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, if the government lost that uh, the vote yeah. on, on, they, on that, what would that have meant? They would then? have had two options. They could either resign and give power to another, usually the leader of the opposition, possibly even a government formed by somebody from their own party, or they could ask for a dissolution. That's the key difference. They would but have it, been but able it would have been a big deal. It would really essentially have marked the end of the government. It would usually have marked the end of the government, yeah. Well, always, really. And you go back to 1924 was the last time somebody lost then a King's speech and they resigned immediately Stanley Baldwin and he gave power to Labour to there Ramsay MacDonald exactly yep. uh, the first Labour government there wasn't a general election until October um, so it yeah it really matters but but now but we have now. the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and so suddenly the, the significance of this has ebbed away a bit and it, Hannah I mean what, what, what happens um, if uh, under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, if if the government has um, a vote of no confidence, or what are the different routes? Under so, as this? Kath said, 
the Queen's speech, where it would have been a, a confidence issue, no longer is. And if Parliament wants to signal that it no longer has confidence in the government, then it has to do so under the terms of the Act. It has to have a formal vote of no confidence in the government and, 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 and pass that. And, and that is the way that you would get then into a 14-day period in which it would be possible for somebody else to try to form a government. And if that didn't happen in the 14-day period, then you'd be into another election. OK, and then there's this crucial bit about... What does it mean to form an alternative government? What would you have to do? What would Jeremy Corbyn or others have to do to say, look, we really are? You've just basically got to be able to show that you've got the numbers, that it doesn't matter whether or not that is getting letters from Lib Dem support, from uh, SNP and so forth to say, well, you know, we've got the numbers or some kind of formal vote. You know, now MPs have found ways to grab hold of the order paper. They could easily find a way to sort of show that they've got the numbers. The difficulty is not the mechanism to do it. The difficulty is actually them getting the vote. We've seen weeks now. It's the politics. Exactly. We've seen weeks of them saying... the legal opportunity. Yeah. And you don't have to prove it in Parliament. That's a crucial point, isn't it? You don't have to have a vote. You don't have to go back from the Queen and and show that you've definitely got the numbers. You can just be the government at that point after the Queen has asked you to form a government. So, crucial question, which we think they're thinking about in, in the palace. Are there circumstances in which the Queen could tell the Prime Minister to go? I think... So, it's what was being talked about last week, was if a vote of no confidence was passed and there was an alternative government and then the government refused to resign, then yes, there would be pressure from the palace. They would want to make sure that constitutional procedures were followed through. And that's kind of the really crucial thing about all of this uh, is whether or not you've got that alternative government in place. There's three interlocking things you've got to have for a government. Uh, Firstly, you know, you've got to have a government is the first thing. Secondly, they've got to be able to command confidence in the House of Commons. And then thirdly, if they don't have those things, we have either an election or you have an alternative government being formed. One of those three things has to happen. At the moment, we can't get an election. There is no alternative government. If this government loses confidence, we've still got to have some form of government in place. And that is the reason why they probably won't resign if they lose the Queen's speech next week, unless there's an alternative government in place. That's the crucial thing. Kath, how does the Queen's speech stuff interact with Brexit? Because presumably, if Boris Johnson gets his deal through and gets support from MPs on Saturday, he's then only got two weeks in order to pass the withdrawal agreement bill that Hannah mentioned. Yeah, and, like eight sitting days or something like yeah, that on the current... Unless they sit over the weekend. Yeah. And bear in mind that the, Theresa May asked for an extraordinary European Council in yeah. November last year because she didn't think three months was enough. Yeah. So is there a chance that they will kick the Queen's speech because they want those precious extra two days? Or the vote on the Queen's or speech. Or the vote on yeah. the Queen's they speech. They can. Exactly. I mean, so they've got two things left to do. One is moving and voting on the amendments to the Queen's speech and then one, the final is voting on the Queen's speech. Which normally takes place over two days, but exactly. you could do it in a day. You could do it in a day. You could speed it all up much quicker. I mean, now that they've got through those initial stages, you've got to have a Queen's speech in order to do other things in well, Parliament. Well, we have. I just... We have had the Queen's speech. but exactly. Having the debate and the vote on the... Exactly. The so what I was saying was, therefore, once you've got through that it's very easy to then change the like the timetable for it all speed things up yeah they can they can do something how, how, how about to. even slowing it down though? i mean what about amendments to the queen's speech and are they binding they're not binding on the government no any political past, effect don't they, they, would they have don't political have political effect, effect. the you referendum know, was one wasn't it yeah in, in 2013 place. it is politically important. It all goes to the point, though, about whether or not then the final Queen's speech passes if it's got a load of amendments in that actually people want to have there. Just to be really geeky here, because the thing that the amendments are to is the message that the Commons is sending to the Queen. Yeah. So the, the so Commons poli- are saying to the Queen, pressure. thank yeah. you for your speech. And if you amend that, it do, it's just changing what you're saying and to the, the point, And the, the point Queen. that Joe was making is in 2013, that there were, there were amendments which weren't binding on the government, but really gave David Cameron the message that the Commons really cares about so having a referendum. Those yeah. amendments said... We're really sorry that your speech didn't include reference to a bill about having a referendum. Right, so how, yeah. how much time could this take? I Not- don't think it'll take more than the, the next, you know, those two days that they've like put in for it. I think uh, it's just a question of what actually goes in there. And that's the thing, talking about referendums, that's the big thing that might get put in there is there has obviously been a move in the last week or so particularly towards can we get in some kind of confirmatory referendum what we don't know is whether or not uh, those who are in favour of it are going to try and use the Queen's speech as a vehicle which doesn't bind the government or whether they might use the WAB the withdrawal agreement bill and try and get in some kind of confirmatory referendum into that so it is actually binding on the government. So what about the disaster scenario where the vote goes through on Mm. Saturday so the Ben Act falls away Mm -hmm. 
but then they lose the Queen's speech on Monday if they have the vote then. Yeah, then so this happens? is why there was some talk about trying to get in further legislation to say that you've got to actually pass the WAB in order to you know, avoid having to ask for a referendum. But that means more legislation, which means grabbing hold of the order paper yet again. So what you're saying, Joe, is that there's a world in which the meaningful vote passes, but then the legislation needed to implement it doesn't, and we could still leave without a deal. Now, there's one world in that's in which that might be accidental, but could it also be a strategy on the part of some people? Well, if you want no deal, that is one route to get it. Why not back the Prime Minister this weekend? Because if your preference is no deal on the 31st of October, that is the best way to get there, to get the Ben legislation to fall away and then withdraw your support on the legislation. I guess there's still an option in that, in that scenario of Parliament trying the people who don't want no deal to step back in to try to take your control of the order paper again and to legislate again to put in some provisos to prevent that happening. After Tuesday, then it's back to can bring emergency debates. Does the Speaker grant it? Everything that we saw for that you know short period before the was it the prorogation that never happened? The first prorogation. And we we we've still got uh, the Speaker John Burko, don't we? Yeah. It's, 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 it's his last hurrah. I mean, we've still got other candidates now for to take over from him. All all uh, all the things, but it, you know, is it, is what he decides going to have much influence for the next two weeks yes do we still think there's a chance of an accidental exit with no deal always just because of the the lack of time that even if the prime minister gets this deal gets parliament's backing and everything just because of the lack of time i mean we could we could be right up against um yeah yeah i mean if you have to try and ram through a withdrawal agreement bill in two weeks and what was that on Maastricht for the legislation implementing Maastricht Treaty, the kind of uh, kind of comparator, if you like, there was over 100 votes mm-hmm. in the Commons. Yeah. And it took something like 40 sitting days. Yeah. On Lisbon, it was something like 25 sitting days and about 80 votes on the piece of legislation right, implementing so, so in, the EU so in this, Treaty. So starting where we are now, going through, heading, heading for Halloween, or what could be the way that we still end up with no deal? So if Parliament and says exit, if yeah. Parliament says yes to the deal in principle on the weekend, and then the legislation implementing it is published, so at that point the 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 Ben Act asking for an extension has fallen away because we passed because the because of the government's vote. got a got a deal and Parliament's exactly. voted for it. Yep. But it then needs to pass this legislation that this will is the contain withdrawal agreement bill. Yeah, exactly. Now remember this piece of legislation when it was first by Theresa May that a lot of it will be unchanged when she first went to publish it. That is when her government fell yeah, apart. That yeah. is when Andrea Ledson resigned. Yeah. Having yeah, and, seen and, and what and was is, in this, it. This is an international treaty, and, and 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 it's got lots and lots of clauses, and lots of this is contentious. There will yeah. be stuff about powers to continue payments, there'll be stuff about continued supremacy of EU law. If you are reliant on ERG Brexiteer votes and you get a majority of one on the weekend, it only takes one person to say, oh, actually, when seeing this, what what happens in UK law, I don't really like this. So then you get into this very interesting question of whether your majority changes as you go through, where the ERG say, no, we don't like this, we can't back this having seen this. And then some of the Labour MPs who had previously said, I am not voting for this deal, say, oh, well, if it's this deal or actually no deal... Maybe I will back this legislation. And so the Prime Minister, I mean, who seemed to be on the back foot on lo- lots of this, might actually have this strong card up his uh, up his sleeve still of saying, look, you, you've, you've really got to back this by this deadline or it's no deal. If he passes through this weekend in the meaningful vote, he will be able to look MPs in the eye and say, this is my deal or no deal in a way that previously the Theresa May's tried and failed and actually, he would probably be able to say that more credibly than ever. So he may have got this bit of brinksmanship that he's been trying for. All and it long. is supreme brinksmanship. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's part of the like challenge in all of this is that he wants to do brinksmanship to get us to the deal on Saturday, but <laughs> yeah. then after that yeah. he's got to do consensus building, and he's not been doing a lot of that in the last three months. So it would be a complete change of tack then from the prime minister to a very new kind of relationship with Parliament, with his own backbenchers. Will he bring the twenty-one back into the fold? Will These are the twenty-one uh, MPs that he threw out of the party. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, unknown how they're going to vote, and uh, we gather well, Downing Street's looking particularly closely at Philip. Will Hammond, he the remove Chancellor. the whip from anyone who doesn't vote for the deal on Saturday and reduce his majority further? We shouldn't lose sight of the truly big factors that are shaping events on something of a longer time scale. So picking up one of the key phrases from Parliament, you could call these 
urgent questions. What's the major issue that the government is ignoring? The problem being stored up, the headlines that politicians really want to avoid. The issue that we should, when we're not talking about everything else, really be talking about. Hannah. So what's been really surprising to me this week is that we've had this really alarming situation in Syria. We've had Donald Trump deciding to withdraw American troops and the subsequent Turkish offensive. And we've really heard nothing about that in Parliament. So instead of having what you might have normally expected, a number of questions on this, uh, 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 Prime Minister's questions, urgent questions, emergency debates on this really important international issue, we've been debating the Queen's speech. And we haven't really had anything from the government either. No. And, and, you know, we haven't had PMQs because we've had the Queen's speech. We haven't had emergency debates because we've had the Queen's speech. So something which is a really important international issue, we've been very domestically focused. The sound of silence. The real question to me is whether Britain's foreign policy and the kind of things that Britain might be, you know, wanting to say on on Syria and the Kurds and so on is going to be muted because we're going to be looking for trade deals, that in fact our foreign policy is going to become our trade policy as we go hunting around the world for countries to try to be nice to us on trade. We're going to say less and less about the things that we really think should be happening or in fact not happening in Syria. Now, we at the IFG are always writing reports, hosting events, discussions. Do check out our website. And each week on this podcast, we're going to find out a little bit more about what we've been up to, the big idea that we've been talking about. Joining us this week, Giles Wilkes, a former special advisor to Theresa May, even more formally to Vince Cable. He's joined the Institute for Government just two weeks ago. And on Twitter, he describes himself as recovering from 30 months in Downing Street, advising on economic policy. Giles, welcome. Have you recovered? Only just. And then you've pitched me straight into the thick of it by trying to think about no deal. So it's an odd way to recover. But yeah, a change is as good as a rest, I guess. And it, well, it's not just no deal, is it? You've published a report out uh, this week on a 16,000 word report on business and no deal. Tell us about it. Well, it was inspired in a way by Michael Gove saying at the beginning of August that not to worry about no deal. We understand it's going to be difficult. Scarring and burning, I think, is one of his favourite phrases. But business will be guaranteed some kind of support from government to get it through these bumps in the road. So if we have a few weeks of turmoil, there'll be a government fund. I think he refers to Operation Kingfisher. And this will um, keep the businesses that are feasible afloat. And we all had a discussion in the institute and thought... There's an awful lot to unpack here. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for government, for businesses to pick up. How are we going to define who's been hurt by no deal? How are we going to make sure that we don't get gamed or waste money? How do we know when no deal is going to end? So I thought, I know the Treasury is going to be interested in this. And I know there's a lot of public policy angles. So let's sit down, read about no deal harms and see what the government might do. So you sat down and you've tried to calculate some of the things that government might have to pay to support businesses. Yes. I mean, I started... The numbers are pretty big. I mean, yeah, even the smallest numbers are really big. I mean, I started with the one that Michael Gove felt most comfortable talking about, sheep farming, because he's a former uh, uh, Secretary of State at the Department for Farming. And he's uh, really been in this question. Yeah, he really knows about it. And he knows that nobody can deny that the sheep farmer is going to be really badly hurt. So why don't you start with that? And even that, which is a kind of a £400 million business for this country, that would cost £100 million every year. For for government to to support them to where they they would have been. Joe Owen, just tell us a bit about why they were going to be hurt that much. Well, the the big thing for for sheep farmers is the tariffs. If we have no deal, then uh, the tariff barrier comes up between us and the EU, and I think it works out at roughly 40%, is it, per sheep carcass, which immediately makes these businesses unviable for selling to the EU. And I can't remember the exact percentage, something like 30%, is it? Or is it more than that? that I think of their exports, 95% of them go to the EU. And I think partly the the tariffs that we're going to bring in when we have to come in with our own ones, Joe can confirm this, will not protect us against the flood of New Zealand lamb. So as a result, the the price for your sheep carcass as a sheep farmer is expected to fall by around 30%. And this is the kind of interesting question of all the different ways businesses can be harmed right there. We've heard just two there of us being more open to other markets and facing new competition, also facing new tariffs with the EU. 
But yeah. Charles, you point out to a load more of possible yeah. harms. So what are, what are some, what are some uh, other lumps of money government might, might have Staying within to... tariffs for, for to start with, some tariffs will go up for importers. So if you want to buy a car made overseas in the EU, currently it's tariff-free. It might go up by 10%. That's easily your margin. Um, the biggest effect is the export tariff. Some businesses like um, like cars will find they've got a... To, the, the cars that we make in the UK, 70 or 80% are exported, a lot of them to the EU. They'll become uncompetitive pretty quickly. I think the cost from the Society for Motor Manufacturers is around £2,700 per car. So what, what does that add, add up to? You've, got, you've, gone, you've sat down so very nicely a, with a piece of paper so and you've worked out what it costs. 650,000 cars a year are currently exported to the EU. Multiply that through by 2,700, just the tariff effect. That's around £2 billion. But then those car businesses are also importing and exporting constantly. They'll be hurt by all those queues at the border we're warned about. Only takes a few minutes of extra queuing and suddenly you've got miles of tailbacks in Kent. And they rely on all of that capital that they've got tied up in those lorries, um, all of those cars being moved around, moving quickly. As we saw last week, I think Nissan warned we can't remain viable if we have these conditions. So we've got sheep and cars. Any more numbers you want to throw at us? Or throw at throw the government? Another the one I came up with, I mean, I think the number for smaller companies exporting across yeah. um, is around £55 billion. And the sorts of numbers for what these we... Are, these are very big numbers. Yes, because we're a big economy and we, we try to export a lot and small companies, it's a very important part of their business. Right, and so you're, you're saying this is good reason for the government and us all to worry. Oh, uh, definitely. And, and we haven't even moved to services, which is easily the biggest part of the economy. That would run to a couple of tens of billion. Is it your impression the government has worked out these numbers? I get the feeling that when the government said it wanted to do this, it was thinking about a very narrow set of circumstances. It was thinking about the sort of sudden accidents that will hit businesses where in the financial crisis we had quite a good record. We gave people a few extra months to pay their taxes. About 440,000 companies benefited from that. The government was owed about £7 billion, but they got it back. Now, that's OK, but no deal is way more complicated, way more long-lasting, and, and operates along way more dimensions. So it's not just that you won't be able to pay your tax money. It might be that an entire line of business in Europe or elsewhere is non-viable for an indeterminate number of months. And government industrial strategy should not operate like that. I mean, are the government putting out stuff on this? Are any of those things warning these businesses? Andrea Ledsom did a series of uh, videos, didn't she? Uh, there were some very nice gifts that went out from yeah. her yeah. and the business yeah. department's Twitter accounts. Are we the only one that are talking about this? Well, I remember when people well, saw those gifts. Business talking about it, but but they haven't they haven't put all these numbers together, have they? They haven't necessarily turned them into numbers, partly because they're still trying to calculate them. And they, they, for example, one of the guidance pages has 190 different sort of sets of guidance notes you might get for this situation or that situation. I think one of you guys at the Institute for Government forwarded me one just about if you're a farmer wanting to export and there's a 15-stage flow chart that you've got to start thinking about. Because the paperwork is the other big issue and we know that the government has recently, I mean this government has put in much more effort to try and help businesses get ready than Theresa May's government. That is one of the big changes. There's the big comms campaign. Now you can ask whether putting out gifts on Twitter is a very good way to drive readiness but there is lots that they have been doing and making clear that business groups there's money available but it is a massive job isn't it i mean i remember speaking to someone who was working um on border readiness in government and they said how do you start to have these conversations when you say you could just need to think about getting this extra bit of paperwork but ultimately, you might also want to consider that your business may no, no longer be viable in mm. the UK. Mm. So, Charles, I mean, what should the government do? As Joe's just been bringing in some of the things the government you know, can do and is doing. But what, what, what are you recommending the government should well, do about this? There's a very minimal recommendation, which is by all means, if you think you're going to have a few months of economic turmoil... Get out those old plans for time to pay on tax. Encourage the banking sector to be more lenient. Maybe offer some of the state's balance sheet to help guarantee some of those iffy loans. Lighten your criteria for a bit. But like a criteria for lending? Yeah. For, and, and would you say this is something we learned from the financial crisis? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that worked. Okay, some, a lot of the things that they tried in the financial crisis didn't. They threw everything at the wall and saw what stuck. Some of the other things that business lobbies are asking for that relates to what Joe was just referring to. They need advice. So some of the business lobbies like the Federation for Small Business want vouchers that you can spend with legal experts to give you advice. And sometimes these vouchers play the useful role of telling the business it's got something it's got to start thinking about. So apply for the voucher. You might learn that you had a risk that you didn't know about. But 
to be honest, I mean, that that's a lot of vouchers. 200,000 exporting companies, three grand per voucher. That's 600 million pounds just to find out what your problems are. And then you might find that as a result of using that legal advice, you need to spend tens of thousands of pounds setting up a new procedure or an overseas office or a new training course. So that's only finding out what your problems are, not necessarily solving them. And a deal... If Boris Johnson's dream scenario is we get a deal and it all sails through by October it 31st. It is his dream scenario, yes. yes. <laughs> um, this doesn't go in the bin, does it? It just goes on the shelf because no deal can still happen. Yeah. But also, do you think that they would have to consider these sorts of measures for trying to help businesses adjust to the new world when we, if we do get a deal? I think this because, is a really important yeah. point because there's going to be disruption Yeah, and there's going to be costs. I mean, a lot of these are costs that even if you spend a long time gliding towards them, at the end of it all, you've got procedures you didn't have before. You've got customs procedures you've got to go through. You've got a lot of recertifying. All of these things have to happen even if you have a deal. The difference with no deal, it it was going to hit suddenly on the stroke of midnight on the 1st of November. Instead, now we've got a decent chance to plan for it. There'll be time to talk about it. Yeah, Yeah. but a lot of these costs, those multi-billion dollar costs, are there in the government's own impact assessment for what it's now planning to do. I wonder if you can explain one thing to me, which I find fascinating. How does the government go about deciding which businesses to help take take the, the Thomas Cook problem yeah. as you've called it in your report it's an incredibly ad hoc process because often you have to be reactive they don't sit down and say what should we do if Thomas Cook comes to us next week it just happens and if and Thomas they, Cook comes yeah. and says and you know our business is, is suffering because of Brexit and they yeah. did say a bit of that when they, when they were in, in, in trouble um, but if a, a, a company turns up and says to government, we need help yeah. uh, really urgently and it, all this is because of Brexit, what, do, what does the government do? Well, first of all, the departments get lobbied by the the company directly and then those departments go and talk to the Treasury and they normally get a very wintry reaction immediately because the Treasury knows that offering money to a, gov- a company in distress is a good way of losing the money immediately. You need to get the company's skin in the game and they're running out of skin, if you like. What do you mean by skin in the game? Skin in the game means they need to put their own investment in. So uh, they want to know that there's literally nothing yet left for the company to offer. They want to know that the banks are also in there. Because after all, if you bail out the company, the banks have been given a free shot. Their loans are made good because of the government and the taxpayers' money. So a lot of really, really tough questions come along. Then you've got to ask questions about things like state aid. Is this legal? Because it's not really fair propping up your own companies while the competitors have to deal with the stand on their own two feet. So a lot of really tough questions are asked before you even consider actually doing it. And then you have the strategic question. So why are we helping this company? Is it one of those ones that we need to have for the long-term prosperity of the country? Because... For example, the travel business that you refer to, there's plenty of other travel companies. Those staff members can go and work for somewhere else. And they else. might have a real case in saying, look, we've suffered a bit from Brexit, but they might. Yeah. some of them might be what you call viable businesses, some might not. Yeah, and if they're not viable, well, we have a really good capitalist economy. We've got an insolvency system that picks up the assets, that reorders it. So when, for example, Amazon rises and a high street retailer falls, we don't tend to worry too much at an economic level. We know that the economy is kind of shifting towards a more productive way of doing things and the treasury orthodoxy is let the market sort it out so we can't we can't do it on a you've kind of talked about understanding individual cases presumably defra aren't going to check on every individual farm in south wales to work out whether they think they're going to be all right to invest in so you need stuff that's kind of kind of blanket don't you yeah and and the trouble is of the point you make there some of those farms will have really prepared they'd have gone out decided to cancel holidays for several years and make sure they've got the funds to survive it and they might feel aggrieved if the ones that didn't take those didn't bother to do anything at all then rely on the government that's what we call moral hazard it's like you know let's not put on the seatbelt because you're actually the giving, giving businesses an incentive not to to prepare because they think the government safety net is there which is terrible particularly if your government number one priority is make sure everyone prepares for no deal yeah, so it does actually stop the government from advertising yeah uh, what to do but in, in case it encourages companies not to try so if you can think cast your mind back where have we seen examples where the government does then intervene it's only been where there's been a, a fantastic spillover systemic problem for the whole economy the banks so it wasn't about making sure that Fred Goodwin had a more comfortable retirement it's because the rest of the economy would have been dragged down if RBS went bust but that's a very very high bar if you think of the other companies that have been allowed to go 
um, bus, like the steel companies, even though there's a huge effect on the local area, they cannot make the case for intervening a lot of the time. And you mentioned before, I mean, you're an economist, um, you mentioned before that, that what we've learned from the financial crisis. What about bank lending? There was a lot of... Um, argument uh, after, during the financial crisis and yeah. saying, look, were banks lending appropriately or were they just pulling in their, uh, their, their capacity much too much? What, what, where are we now? I mean, my former boss, Vince Cable, reacted immediately to the bank bailout in October 2008 saying, well, we've given you all of the state's money. Are you not going to lend it to British business, which is struggling? And they didn't. Lending fell and fell and fell. And under the coalition, we tried to have an agreement to sort of force them to. But two or three big problems with that. One, before the crisis, they were lending unwisely. So it's a very confused message to come to them and then say, now that the economy is cratering, lend even Please more. Please lend unwisely. Yes. Uh, secondly, demand for loans is a very big point here. Most SMEs in that crisis will also be saying, don't do anything to borrow and increase your risks. So lending will fall anyway. So it was very hard to tell whether the efforts to get the banking system working again were being effective because bank lending was not a game anyone wanted to be in. So we learned quite a lot through the financial crisis. But one thing we learned above all is to make the banking sector stronger for next time. And now it is very strong. That gives you another reason to doubt whether government intervention um, is important because um, the banking sector ought to itself seek out their companies that are worth supporting and they're normally better at it than Whitehall bureaucrats. Why haven't we seen anything on this, Charles? Why is We've seen Yellowhammer documents published mm. and we've seen government's plans for no deal in other areas published. Why do you think they've not said anything about their plans for wow. who they will support now other than Michael Gove's favourite uh, sheep meat example? Here I can only speculate. I've had radio silence um, from uh, my former colleagues in Whitehall. Understandably, it's a very, very sensitive topic. The natural answer is because they don't. They know there isn't a neat answer here. Yeah. Nobody wants to come out and say, here's our support package, because that has to have boundaries around it. And if you're outside the boundary, you yeah, start yeah. lobbying the government immediately. So it's incredibly controversial. Yeah. You know, the minute they say anything, there are going to be losers as well as winners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's my best guess. The last thing you want to say is we've got our package ready because people pour over it and... They, they won't like what they see. And Joe, I mean, you've been making the point for a long time that no deal is not the end of a matter. You know, if we have no deal, we've still got an awful lot of talking. Yeah, it just changes uh, the situation you're in where you are negotiating with the EU. We will, you know, even the proponents of no deal say they want to deal with the EU. So you would just start those negotiations from a different, probably much more painful position and actually we know the adjustments you know Giles is talking about the potential years of adjustment it might take for certain industries yeah, and, the, and the figures Giles would be giving it really for one year's support and, and, and that would have to be repeated every year until we got what you're talking about exactly and it's also true for government right there's no way that government's plans for no deal all have an end stop of October 31st getting a border system that the UK government is comfortable with that plan runs until probably the mid 2020s and so there's a huge amount of work that would need to happen way beyond the point at which we need just to adjust both inside government and also in business years of work yeah i think i mean the if you think that automatic pension enrollment took over a decade mm. it has been just over three years since votes dropped into the ballot box will we have a new I mean, we already know new immigration system is going to be a year later the former head of HMRC said it would be the mid-2020s before border systems were set up. We've already talked about agricultural policy possibly not being readjusted until the late 2020s. These are big, big policy areas that we're having to change and you're going to want to take time changing them. Um, and actually sometimes the practicalities dic that dictate the timelines rather than kind of the, the international negotiations. So Giles, as MPs sit, sit down uh, to look at Boris Johnson's deal, what's coming out of the EU, th this is the message you're, you're, you're telling them to look very hard at no deal. Oh God, yeah, I mean, they should not want no deal to be anywhere near it because no deal means them, in effect, Saturday sessions for the rest of time as far as I see because there's so much information to be getting through. It's so much more complicated to deal with a machine that's broken than one that's humming along. If they have a, a comprehensive free trade agreement or anything off the shelf like single market status, business knows how to deal with that. You don't have to have all of these fiddly bespoke mechanisms. If it's no deal, it's like pulling the machine to pieces and having to deal with every cog and sprocket in there. 
they, I, I could not recommend against it more strongly. Well, Saturday sessions forever. Maybe that's the incentive we've been lacking to get the whole thing to work. I thought we were going to a four-day week, not yeah. a six-day week. <laughs> <laughs> and we have also published this week a, a report on No Deal and the effects for the union for devolution and stuff much packed into that as well. Now, Hilary Benn is the chair of the exiting EU committee in the House of Commons, and he's an MP with an Act of Parliament named after him. He's at the heart of the attempts to prevent the UK leaving the EU without a deal. And if his carefully crafted legislation does what it intends, then it would force the Prime Minister to break the law if he forces a no-deal Brexit. Hilary Benn has been speaking to Kath. We're in Portcullis House. It is Thursday afternoon. And Jean-Claude Juncker has just said that the EU will rule out an extension. So what happens to your act now, Hilary Benn? Well, whether an extension is granted by the European Council is not actually in the gift of Jean-Claude Juncker. So I, I, I interpret his remarks as being a desire to get this done. We can't keep going on like this. But it is for the Council. And the choice has always been... Um, that the council would have to confront at some point, are they going to be the ones that push us over a cliff? Now, I don't believe, to mix my metaphors, when push comes to shove, that they would do that, because I think that would be um, disastrous for Britain, for the economy, our future, disastrous for our future relationship with the European Union. But I understand entirely the frustration which the European leaders feel about the fact here we are three and a bit years on and a deal hasn't been agreed and we'll see on Saturday whether the latest deal does go through although the DUP's clear statement they're not going to vote for it, indeed they're going to vote against it must throw that into question Absolutely and I think you know that is one of the big questions now is obviously whether or not the deal will pass on Saturday the other question though is if that doesn't pass do the EU really mean that or do you think that we will come back to this question of an extension how much do you think number 10 have played a part in trying to get the EU to push this to be a deal or no deal vote on Saturday? Uh, the honest answer is I don't know and we will have to see what Boris Johnson says to the council when he speaks to the other EU leaders. But clearly, if the deal is defeated on Saturday, then he, the Prime Minister is required under the Act to write a letter asking for an extension. But at that point... I mean, lots of us have been saying we can't keep putting this off. And if a deal is not approved by Parliament, might Parliament approve a deal subject to a confirmatory referendum? And I think at that moment, I mean, that's been my view for quite some time, there are a growing number of members who feel like that. Whether it is yet a majority, we cannot say. Until there's a vote, we won't know whether that would come on Saturday or maybe more likely next week, once, if and when it becomes clear that the government's deal has been defeated. Well, at that moment, it is a way out because it allows you to go to the EU, look, if you grant us an extension now, you know it's going to be for a referendum. It will produce a decision. Uh, and then we can move on either if the vote is to remain, uh, then Article 50 is revoked, if it is in favour of the deal, um, then you get into negotiating the future arrangement. I think the problem for the, the other problem for the Prime Minister, particularly on the Labour side, is his deal is worse for the economy even than Theresa May's. Uh, it is a hard form of Brexit because a free trade agreement on the lines of Canada involves customs checks and rules of origin checks and regulatory checks. And that's why you saw really important business sectors last week, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, aerospace and the others, saying this is really, really bad for us. And the government's own economic assessment, let us not forget, calculated that this would be the second worst outcome after a no-deal Brexit. So it's not good for the future of the country. Um, obviously, Number 10 had a lot of suggestions for how they might test the law, the act under your name to its limits. One of those was whether or not uh, you have to lay the agreement before the House and that has to be voted on but you've still got to obviously put it into legislation and pass the withdrawal agreement bill is there a danger that a vote passes on Saturday but then the legislation to put it into practice does not and we still end up exiting on no deal 
Well, those of us, which is a majority of members of Parliament, who are very strongly opposed to a no-deal Brexit will not want that uh, to happen. In order to satisfy condition one in the Act, which uh, the government has to have concluded an agreement, well, they clearly have done that, and has to put text before Parliament, where well, the text is now available, both of the political declaration and the revised withdrawal agreement, in essence, the change to the Northern Ireland, uh, Republic of Ireland protocol. So if that goes through, if that were to go through, then the, the Prime Minister doesn't need to write a letter. Uh, but then who knows what happens afterwards when it comes to uh, voting on the bill. And there has been fiendish speculation that then people who don't like it would say, well, I'm not voting for the legislation. Oops, we're out with no deal. But I think if that becomes evident, because I would expect the withdrawal agreement bill to give effect to the deal if it were to pass on Saturday, which I hope it doesn't, um, we would get that probably Tuesday of next week and then it would become pretty readily apparent if that's what was going on. And Parliament has shown that we have the capacity through the Standing Order 24 procedure to legislate further if that is required. Okay. Last question then. Uh, do you think this makes the likelihood of an election this side of Christmas less likely? Do you think it makes the possibility of a caretaker government in the next few weeks more likely? Well, the, the politics surrounding a caretaker government, an emergency government, are very, very complicated uh, indeed. Um, I mean, the position that Jeremy Corbyn has taken is the extension has to be requested and secured in order to ensure that, that we don't crash out without a deal on the 31st of October. And the questions you've just asked me um, make the point that what might seem clear on Saturday might not be quite so clear um, during the course of next week. But look, I would say this, that if we get to the point where Parliament does vote on a confirmatory uh, referendum and Parliament doesn't vote for a confirmatory referendum, then I think it's pretty clear we're heading for an election because, apart from anything else, it would be the only means of achieving it uh, if we've got a Labour government which is committed to that confirmatory referendum, then we get it. Um, but there would be no other way of achieving it other than asking the people when they decide who they want to be in government. Hilary Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. We're coming to the end of the podcast, and before we do, I'd like to give you a heads up on what's coming next week. So let me go around our panel. Kath, what's coming down the track for you? A big question for me is whether there's any movement on the opposition either bringing a vote of no confidence or supporting a vote for an election. It's always been about, do we get to this point and an extension, and then do we now move on to an election? Great. Hannah? I've been thinking about the speaker election we've got coming down the track John Burke has been in place for a decade now and potentially the next speaker could be in, in place for the next decade. We've seen the significance of the speaker role play out through the Brexit process. It really matters who does this job and we're going to see in the next couple of weeks who that is. Joe, Predicting next week on Brexit is never a sensible idea. But one of the things I think will be very interesting to look out for next week is possible extension. Do we get a short extension in order to pass all the legislation? And this is in the EU's hands, what the EU decides to give the UK. Precisely. So can we agree with them a short extension to get through legislation? Will it be a longer extension because more negotiations required because we can't get it through Parliament here? Or does the EU say, that's your lot, guys, no more extensions, you need to get this done now, UK Parliament, and help the government ramp up the pressure on MPs to try and get this deal through? Terrific. There's lots to look forward to. And that's it this week for me, Bronwyn Maddox, and Inside Briefing with the IFG. I hope you've enjoyed listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe. Just search for Inside Briefing with the IFG on your preferred app. Visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk or find us all on Twitter. We're all there. And please do send us your questions and any feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.